Hope you all had a faithful week in serving our Lord. I know some of our weeks can be very trying. Sometimes it's hard to just to be honest and say, hey, had a very tough week. You know, the week's been a challenge, but ultimately, I mean, we're still kicking, right? We're still alive. We still have breath in our lungs, and we still have an opportunity to worship Christ before we pass into eternity, which is a beautiful thing, beautiful thing. With that being said, turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 13. I will be picking picking up where Sean had left off last week. Uh, which he so powerfully spoke in Romans 13. I, I was just very impressed with the, with the teaching altogether. Uh, I thought it was one of the best I've heard on uh, the portion that he uh, had preached from, dealing with government and how we should respond to government and all these things that deal with uh, the lifestyle of, of a believer in accordance with, with the government. I just thought it was very well put together. Um, so we're going to be picking up, picking up in verse 8. And we're going to finish off the chapter uh, this morning. So let us go ahead and start. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 8 reads, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this, saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today through your precious blood. Lord, we come as repentant saints, running away from ourselves, this world and the devil, and running to you, Lord. We ask you, God, today that you would help us, you would enable us uh, to be able to hear. Give us ears to hear. Lord, and give us the ability to be able to hear your voice uh, through your word this morning. Help us to operate like biblical Christians, which are really the only true Christians, Lord, that exist in this world. Lord, that we would be energized by the Holy Spirit, Lord, illuminated by his power and living a life that would Uh, indicate that we truly are uh, followers of truth, followers of the living God. Make it so, Lord, for your glory, not for our benefit, even though it benefits us greatly, Lord, to be driven by the Spirit of God, Lord. But ultimately, it's so we can worship you. 
We can worship you by exalting your name amongst the nations. We just commit this time into your hands, Lord, and we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to kind of give you a little bit of the background, which which helps immensely uh, when dealing with Paul's ministry uh, as he wrote the book of Romans. We get some idea uh, of the backdrop in which, which Paul, in his existence in this time, writing a letter to a people group, uh, understanding what is going on uh, during this time of Paul's ministry, gives us great insights in, into how we are to uh, deal with with life in our culture, because there's a lot of similarities to Rome and America. Now, I'm not drawing parallels and saying that we're the new Rome and all of that, but what I'm saying is a lot of the sins, a lot of the things that we deal with today in, in our country uh, are very um, close to what Paul uh, was dealing with in, in his day. And I think it's very important that when we read these verses, we read them in light, in context, what, what Paul was dealing with, so we can get an understanding as well, and also be encouraged, not only convicted that, listen, am I participating in sins that really I'm supposed to be confronting, or am I able in, a, in, a, in the hour that we live in in America, and the things that we see going on, um, is there a prescription uh, in, in, in lifestyle of a believer that you know is an antidote or a, you know, it pushes back, you know, it push, pushes back uh, on the ugliness and crime of this world. It was said in a statistic back in, I think it was the late 1800s, that one street preacher was equivalent to 10 policemen in its ability to resist evil, to be able to eliminate crime in a certain area. Just the presence of a preacher had that ability upon the culture, upon the city. So you get any idea what a Christian in general who truly lives for Christ, biblically speaking, is a true follower of Christ, will have an impact wherever he goes, whether that's being out on the street on a soapbox preaching the word of God, or whether that's, uh, you know, could be anywhere, in the barbershop, wherever you are, you know, you have that, that godliness that invokes um, the blessed, you know, power of God, but also constrains constrains evil from taking place in your presence. Rome's population, at the time Paul wrote the book of Romans, the total population of the city was around one million people. This made Rome one of the largest uh, Mediterranean cities of the ancient world. Well, I can see. Roman society was basically two-tiered. And what this means is that there was two-tiered. There's like two basically elements of society. You had the upper class, which consisted of the, um, basically the, a ruling oligarchy, consisting in or pertaining to the rule of a privileged class of people, basically ruled, like landowners and government officials. While most of the people in the lower class were slaves. Eventually, as many as one-third or more of the empire's population, get that, one-third or more of the entire empire's population were slaves. These slaves included criminals, debtors, and prisoners of war, even the more prominent, like doctors and teachers and philosophers and businessmen, were also slaves in Rome. Get that. 
Slavery was a prevailing feature of the Mediterranean societies in Paul's day, but the Romans had more slaves than any other people. Think about this as far as, as we're dealing with the um, verses we just read. Many, if not, of most of the people in Rome who read the epistle of Paul to the Romans would have been slaves at this time. Reliable yet cautious sources estimate the slave population to be about 300,000 to 350,000 out of a total population of 900 to 950,000 in the first century AD. So now you get kind of an idea of what's going on and what Paul's dealing with and how his letter is received. And you got to understand something that, that, the, that the people that are receiving this letter, they're receiving this letter in context of what they're dealing with in their day. Immorality prevailed in the Roman Empire. First century Rome was known to be filled with all kinds of decadence and immorality uh, from the brutal practices of the arena, uh, the gladiatorial combats found, obviously their, their origin and the rites of sacrifice owed the spirits of the dead and of the need to turn them away from the offerings of blood. I mean, there's always a spiritual context in any kind of... Um, blood-saturated culture. Anytime you see the shedding of blood, whether it's an abortion mill or whether it's this um, exaltation or glorification of bloodlust on watching movies and this infatuation, right, with, with, with violence and blood, it all has its roots in a spiritual source. There's always a context by which they operate. Even these these games that they that they would be a part of, you know, they... They got to such excess that they had to have, you know, they, they started out where they'd have it three days, right? And the, the people would come from their homes. They would watch these, these games and participate. They would watch uh, people getting fed to lions or fighting the gladiators, fighting each other, chopping each other to pieces. And over a period of time, um, the bloodlust got so infected into the people that they needed more. They needed more of a hyper-intense um, epinephrine release in the brain because we know that horror and like uh, sexual lust they release chemicals in the brain that are almost very similar to cocaine or heroin okay so it was as the blood was getting it was getting more violent the games got longer they went from like three days now to three months and people had to be there but they couldn't just be satisfied anymore with a, a person coming out singing a song unless that person was jumped by a lion and had their head torn off could they find pleasure in the entertainment and the, the blood got so so dramatic that gross immorality it would spike immorality in the stands sexual perversion would take place from the reality of the bloodlust co-mingled together would form this debaucherous culture that eventually it wasn't you know it wasn't necessarily the the goths that came in and destroyed brought down rome rome had already decayed from the inside out because they were taking these roman games this they were being amused by by blood and death and perversion and it was going back into their homes till eventually their homes decayed and rome fell i mean this is really uh the sense of what was going on in, in, in Paul's day, these types of games were going on. So Paul knew what the remedy was. Sexual sin, there was prostitution. Uh, there was, I'm not sure if you heard, this is a word I had to look up. It was called pederasty, which was really big. It was a sexual relationship between a, an adult man and a young boy. 
was very prevalent in that day and is very prevalent, obviously, uh, in our country today. Homosexuality was common. Also, there was high rates of divorce and murder happening at this time as well. And this is why Paul says in Romans 1.32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice of them. Just to give you a sense of the culture Paul is addressing in the book of Romans, we know that the culture in essence that he's talking to is the Christian church. He's talking to the church. He's not speaking to all of Rome. He's speaking to the church that are existing within the context of all of Rome. The whole Roman Empire, basically, right? But he's dealing with, with the Christian church and how do you deal with this in the backdrop to all of this gross sin that is going on. And then we have to ask ourselves, is that applicable to us today? In our day, when you see that we're being amused, right, by the same things. I mean, we may not be living in Paul's days where you would walk by and see sexual acts being performed right in front of you in the sense of live performances. But today, obviously, at a push of a button, we can almost see anything we want or be entertained by anything, any kind of gore, any kind of death, any kind of perversion. It's out there at what? A push of a button, right? It's all there. <clears throat> and let me just say this much. There's, that's not just the web. That's, there's another whole uh, element called the dark web where you can get involved in things and never get caught because there's no trace to what you do. There's things that you can get, you know, and, and things you can do that are just so intensely abominable that you, you can't even speak about those things that the book of Ephesians says. But it's just so you get an understanding of what's going on and what the people, the church in Rome, were dealing with as a church. How they were, how do you function in all this, Paul? You know, how do we deal with all of this? Because as you all know, if you're honest, that there is a pull to this stuff. There is a gravitating pull, right? It, especially in a nation that's covered with perversion, right? Everywhere you look, or say bloodlust, or, or being entertained by violence. There is a pull for that stuff. It's everywhere, right? And there is a an obsession. And if we're not careful as the body of Christ, we too can get pulled into these directions. Not even, almost unknowingly, knowingly but unknowingly, in the sense that these things become so pervasive and so intoxicated within our in our culture that without even realizing it, we find ourselves being pulled into directions that we would have never thought we would ever be pulled in. And this is why... Um, Paul says in Romans 13, 11, that he ultimately, Paul wrote these things with a future in mind. As you notice here, Romans 13, 11, he says, in doing this, knowing the time that now it's high time to awake out of our sleep for now our salvation, not, not salvation in the sense of imputation, being born again. He's talking about the salvation of Christ, the final judgment. Jesus Christ is returning and it is nearer now than when we first believed. So he's writing in this context. He has a reason for writing the way that he's writing at this point. He's dealing with the issues of our sanctification and how we're to live in basically a world gone mad. Paul's basically saying, the day is approaching, brothers and sisters, so we need to live like we're already at that day. We need to live in the context that you already are there. So put yourself in that place this morning and think like that. Say, listen, you know that there's going to be a day and an hour um, that you're going to stand before God. 
You're going to stand before Christ. Whether you're living when Christ returns or you die and you approach Him that way. There's coming a time and Paul is wanting to bring that remembrance to you. So you get the context of why he's writing. Why do we even live the way that we live? Why are we to even do these things that we're doing? How are we able to be sustained and stay biblical and godly in a culture that's literally swallowing us whole? How do we do this? Well, Paul explains it through these verses on how to walk a godly life in such a way. He says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Now notice here real quickly, he says, no, owe no one anything. And he's speaking in context of, of paying due taxes and due honor to our government, to our officials, and to our leaders. So, and then he goes into here saying, dealing with owing no one anything. And then he says this, except. And that's the powerful transition verse or word that transitions everything for us to take a moment and to consider what he's talking about. He's saying, except to love one another. That's a payment that can never be satisfied, is what he's saying. Okay, so you just pay all your debts here, deal with all your debts, pay your dues to who dues are are owed. But there's going to be one due in your life that you're always going to be in continual debt. And that is the debt of love. Indebted to love. And that is, he says, to love one another. No, you're indebted to this. That you'll never reach the pinnacle. You'll never reach the end. You'll never satisfy this command in that reality. Christ has satisfied the command. But as the people of God, we have to understand that this is one debt that will never get paid off in the Christian's life. For he who loves another, he goes on to say, has fulfilled the law. And we have to, we have to grapple with that this morning. What is, what is Paul dealing with when he says, fulfilled the law? Do we fulfill the law? I mean, in that sense, or is only Christ the one who's fulfilled the law? And is this what he's even talking about? Well, we do know that he is talking about being indebted. We are, we are truly in debt to God. We all understand this. I hope we understand this as the body of Christ that you don't deserve salvation. Okay? Because the wages of sin are death. You deserve what your wages are to give you, and that's eternal destruction, and what the Bible calls hell. But the reality is, God didn't give you what you deserve. He gives you mercy, and he gives you grace. And this is where our indebtedness comes to, and comes from. This is the origin of our love. It's the fact that God loved us when he didn't have to. He loved us even when we were the most disgusting, vile, enemies on the planet, God showed us mercy through Jesus Christ. God himself chose to love us. He made the choice to love his people, to choose a people, and to put his name upon those people, and to redeem those people for his own glory. Because why? Because he loved them. It's such a dangerous word to say anymore because everywhere you go, it seems like you hear love, 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 love being peddled all over the churches. But a lot of the love you're hearing is artificial false love because it's not based on scriptural love. And this is what we're going to deal with today and realize. Romans 13.8, the Bible says, love one another. Romans 13.9, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's important to God. I mean, the, the, the idea of love is extremely important to God because I'll tell you one thing. It's easy to be angry. Would you agree with that? It's easy, right? It's easy to be angry. I, I, can, I can do that all day long, effortless. But when we are called to love one another, it's very important to God. 
is extremely important because it's easy to hate somebody. Those are things that are generally produced in us, right? It's easy to be angry. It's easy to be hateful. It's easy to, easy to say things that you know you shouldn't be saying. It's easy to lash out in anger. But the scripture tells us that the, the, the indico- indication, the qualification of a believer, we're going to be known by how we love one another. And the Bible doesn't just say each other. It says how we love even our enemies. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when everything's said and done, it's based on our, our relationship with God. Therefore, brethren, the scriptures say, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. Colossians 2.14 says, he has destroyed what was against us. A certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but throws in the lifeline, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.31 and 32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We have to understand that all these things were given freely of the Father to us. We didn't earn anything. He owes us nothing. We're entitled to nothing but the wrath of God. And this is why it's so important to understand why love is such an important doctrine. And if we don't get that right, we can fall into all kind of error. If we're just an anger-driven people with an anger-driven message, and everything that we do is condemnation and criticizing and being cynical all the time, there's a big problem with that biblically. Because that's not what God is saying in his word, how we should behave. And I think a part of us likes to justify that kind of behavior. We want to justify it and find some reason why we can continue to live like that. I like what um, Jesus said in Luke seven forty seven. He says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins that were forgiven, which are many, are forgiven, for she loveth much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. You know, and if, this is why it's so extremely important that we understand that your sins are many. My sins were many. The Bible tells us that our sins were exceedingly sinful in the eyes of a holy God. The enormity of our sin are not small. Every lie, every crime committed is not based on the crime. It's based on the one whom it's committed against. If God is an infinite God, you've committed a crime against him, whether it's lying or stealing. So I only stole a penny. It's not about the amount of what was stolen. It's the act and who the act was committed against. And you committed against divinity. You committed against eternal justice. You committed against the eternal one. The Lord God, the creator, who is infinite and who is holy. So your sin against God is infinite. You've sinned against God. So the the backlash of that is that I have sinned against God, therefore I am infinitely responsible and accountable to my sin against God that's worthy of eternity in hell. Remember, we're sinners by nature and by practice. 
You don't, you're not a sinner by practice and become a sinner by nature. That's Pelagianism. That's the false idea that you're born upright and born without sin. The reality is that we're born in sin. We're born uh, by nature sinful. And because we're sinful by nature, we commit what? Sinful acts. The logical conclusion. What's the Bible's definition of love? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, really spells that out very clearly. It says, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. And have become a, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I don't know about you guys, but I don't like loud, abrupt sounds, period. And this is kind of the idea around this, that without love, you know, that's really what our lives are like to other people. A loud, obnoxious noise. He goes on to say, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and have all the knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, which is the ultimate sacrifice, right? Martyrdom. Even though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits nothing. It's worthless. It's worthless. All your giving to the poor, all your Bible knowledge and all that, if it's not done in love, it's all worthless. And it will all burn up as wood, hay, and stubble. Love suffers long and it's kind. This is what love is. It suffers long, not shortly, it's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. Thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and it endures. It endures all things. Love never fails. Because Christ never fails. He is the personification of love. Christ himself is the person personification, the manifestation of love, the embodiment of truth, the manifestation of grace. Jesus is the eternal one from which all of life springs. This is powerful because this is the true reality of what is love. Because if not, love's not an all-inclusive statement. Because you could say, listen, my homosexual relationship's okay because I love him or I love her. Or doing this is okay because I love, I love, God is love. And that's a very dangerous presupposition because it is not really, it doesn't presuppose really anything except ludicrous. The reality is that that's not biblical love. It's not, what, it's not the love portrayed and defined in Scripture because love ultimately has to be bound up in our view of God himself. If God is holy, love is holy. We've always got to understand that you can't separate love autonomously outside of the reality of God. God, love permeates from his character. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 1 John 4, 8 says, but anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. For God is love. And in John 4, 16, 1 John 4, 16, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love, who live in love, live in God and God lives in them. 
We've got to remember that love is not merely an attribute of God. It is part of his very nature. God is not merely loving. He is love. God alone loves in the completeness and perfection of himself. Love comes from God. He is the source. And since God is love, then we as followers who are born of God will also love. God loves us, so we must love one another. A true Christian, one truly saved, will love God and will love others. Real brotherly love is our response to God's love. The Lord commands his church to love others, our friends, our family, and even our enemies. God's love is very different from human love because it's not based on our feelings. It's based on God's word. He doesn't love us because we please him. As we were talking about this, uh, I think I was praying that this morning, that he simply loves us because of Christ. He loves us because of Christ. Not because one day you please him and another day you feel like you don't please him, that God's love really is determined by how well you please him that day. And it's a very terrible pattern that we can all get caught up in. I know I've been caught up in that before where, you know, I have a really good day where I know I've spent a good amount of time in prayer, but in God's word, I just may have shared my faith. And I just feel like, God, you must really love me today for all these things that I've done, right? And then you have the day where you, you, you didn't have time to pray and you weren't in the word like you should. And you could have shared your faith with the lady at the checkout counter, but you didn't. So now you start feeling the displeasure of God on you. Like, man, God must really hate me today. I've just totally blown it. See, our whole system of thought in the gospel is wrong. That's not the gospel at all. God is pleased with you, not based on what you can and can't do or how well you've lived up to your Christian faith one day and not the next. God's pleasure in you is based simply on his son, Jesus Christ. And it would do well for you to agree with that and meditate upon them. Love is the true test of Christianity. The character of God is rooted in love. We receive God's love in our relationship with Him. We experience God's love in our relationship with others. We experience God's love in our relationship with others. This is why it's so hard to grow outside of a local church, outside of the reality of human beings. And this is why you can't grow in a void. You can't grow from just being on social media with a bunch of fake electronic friends who could care less. An artificial view of friendship. I'm not saying that some people you meet on there cannot become your friends. That's not what I'm saying. But when it becomes your substitute for, for, for Christian culture, and it becomes your substitute for social involvement, there's going to be a big problem on the way we function as human beings, which could, in the end, bring us to areas of great despair, anxiety, depression, all of these things that are statistically proven by relying on these resources solely for our comfort, for our friendships, for our leadership, for our love, for our acceptance. All these things really just turn on us in the end and create a bigger problem. And this is why Jesus has, you know, he's, he's introduced his church, you know, the, the people of God is the antidote, you know, and the people of God not only will be known by the way that we love one another, but also how we respond to a very ugly world. And these are two determining factors of the reality of whether or not we have been born again. And this is why it's so extremely important to be a part of the body of Christ. I'm not talking universally. I'm talking about locally, having a local church, having a local family, 
uh, someone that you can uh, be affirmed in your faith, to walk out your Christian faith with others and be able to struggle with others, <clears throat> to live with others and be around others and, and, and be transparent with others <clears throat> and to bear one another's burdens. These are all extremely important to our Christian growth. You understand that? I mean, without these real relationships, <clears throat> you're not going to grow. I mean, because relationships are what? Sanctifying. One of the most sanctifying relationships you'll ever have is being married to your spouse. One of the most sanctifying instruments that God will use in your life is your spouse. But outside of that is just relationships. Having issues with other people. Learning how to deal with the issues. Learning how to walk through the issues. Learning how to handle differences. Working out our issues together. This is the way that the church grows in holiness. Because we learn and we grow and we're shaped by our relationship. And this is why it's twofold. It's to God, our relationship with God, and then it's our relationship with one another. These are features of the Christian life. These are fundamentals that need to be there in order to operate biblically and live the Christian experience. The Bible says in John 15, 9, this love was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And that would be a verse to, to memorize because this is Jesus Christ saying he loves you. That's very powerful to understand that, you know, if we understood what God, his demonstration of love for us, I think we would, we would, we would tend to walk differently in this world. John 3.16 says, this is God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Think about that. This is God's expression of love. It wasn't some bubbly, mushy Santa Claus love by just giving everybody gifts and doing all these, these, these neat things. The reality is his love was demonstrated in the personification of the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, sending his only begotten son into the world to die for the sins of his people. This was God's love. Well, <clears throat> what is God's love? Because you hear that peddled so much. God's love is Jesus Christ. God's love is personified in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world. It doesn't say a billion other things that he didn't love. It says, so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus even himself said in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me talking about his life, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. This act is an act of love. Christ laying down his life. He says in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that to, we speak of in reference to this verse, than to lay down one's life for his friends. It's not about just someone going out and saying, oh, this is the greatest act of love I can do is to lay my life down that there's more spiritual virtue in that than other things. Christ is dealing with his death for his people. No greater love you'll ever find. There's no higher standard of love. You won't find it anywhere outside of the reality that Jesus Christ died for his people. And to love our neighbor as ourselves is to explain this most, most important message of the world. How much more could I love you beyond the scope of telling you about what Christ has done for us on the cross.
Can you do you have another another something that's more loving than that? I would just be you know interested if you did because I certainly don't see anything beyond or greater. Even Jesus said there is no greater love than this. But also we have to understand that great love that was demonstrated for us. The response to that and the symptoms of that is loving other people in many different ways. This is the power of the gospel. When we are converted, it changes us. It makes us compassionate for other people. You, you, you study church history, you'll see that the church is very busy in Rome. They would, you know, they would leave their, uh, the Romans, would, if they, they, they had a baby that they felt wasn't meeting the greater standard of what the baby should be, they would leave it out to die. Christians would come at night and they would take that baby. They would take the baby and they'd raise that baby. You know, they, they, were, they were busy. You know, they weren't busy just open-air preaching. Uh, the love was manifested in so many different realms that literally Rome was brought to her knees because of it, because of the power of the gospel in, in these, the lives of the people. And it's just very important that we understand that our, our Christian life isn't just telling people that the Lord Jesus Christ died for their sin, but the reality of that in your own life will be expressed in the way that you deal with everything in life. Because that becomes our premise in our with our with our behavior. Does it make sense? It does to me. Anyways. Romans 5 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. How did he do that? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was God's demonstration of love. That while we were still sinners, lost, rebels, enemies of God, Christ died. That's God's demonstration of love. That Christ died for us, yet while we were still without hope, without strength, in our rebellion, Christ died. This is God's love for us. Can you imagine that? Imagine the crimes. Go through an inventory of your life, of the things that you have done and sinned against God, and realize while you were in this place, God loved you anywhere, anyway, and sent his son to die for our sins. Amazing. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but because of the great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So our expression of love towards one another springs forth from God's love toward us and our love towards him. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him, why? Because he first loved us. Which brings us to the, to, to the, the, next, the next point is, is that it's the turning point. And this is where, you know, the scripture tells us that God and how he viewed and how he loved us and how he manifested that love by sending his son. Yet while we were without hope and without strength, Christ died. But because of that, and then in 1 John 4, 7, it shows the turning point. Even in, 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 in the verse that we're reading in Romans, we're dealing with where Paul says that, you know, we're to, there's one debt that we can't pay and that's we're to, we're to love one another. And this is the same point that uh, in 1 John is making in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he does, does not love, does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 20 says, says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Love has been perfected among us in this, or for this purpose, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. 
Because as he is, so we are in this world. He's basically basically amplifying everything, echoing everything that Paul said. That why is all of this being perfected among us? Why is this whole everybody that should be loving one another? Uh, you know, what is the what is the point and purpose for all this? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. You see, this this whole this whole concept of what Paul is calling to uh, us to do is really preparing us. So we don't buckle on the day of judgment. He's preparing us to live in such a way today with each other as if we're already there. We're to treat each other as if we've already been brought into the kingdom. That we've already been saved that way. In other words, glorified. Salvation means three, three, three things in the scriptures. It means being saved as far as justified. It means sanctified. And it means glorified. So we have to understand something. The salvation that's to come is when Christ comes back for his people. And we should be prepared for that. It should be a shock to our system. But how do we develop this unshockable attitude? And he's telling us right here, this is how you do it. This is how we prepare. We act as if we're already there. We behave like we're already there to one another and how we behave to the world and to our enemies. This is how we are going to be brought into the next life in a way that by God's grace won't be shocking. Now listen, I know the Lord's going to give us new packaging. I get that. And I know it's going to be a whole different process in that realm of God's glory. But what Paul's saying here is he's just giving us a target on how to live and why we're living this way. Ultimately, it's our relationship with God, but also it, it flows into our relationship with one another. And this produces a body of believers that's prepared for the return of Christ. Which, if you're living this way and loving this way, we should be excited to see Christ. If we're living in opposition to these ways, we should be fearful of Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? When you're living in sin, you're scared to death to die. But when you're living for God, you're not afraid to die. And this is the whole point he's making here. He says here in verse 18, 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. The perfect love that casts out all fear is the fear that we have from the approaching judgment. That's what he's talking about. This is taken out of context and people use it for all kinds of things. But the reality is here, this perfect love that casts out fear is the perfect love that's perfected in love towards one another. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets is that we are to love one another, love our neighbor as ourselves. This basically dispels the fear in our lives and gives us a confidence for the approaching time when Jesus Christ comes and gets his bride. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. James 2.8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Matthew 22.36, A Pharisee had questioned Jesus about the law, trying to test him, which came at the tail end of their badgering Jesus. Once again, as Paul was clearly explaining um, our submission to governmental authorities. It was the same thing happening in Matthew 22. You get some time, read through that today on your downtime. But they were badgering Jesus whether or not it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. 
They're dealing with the same issue. And it's interesting because the same issue as in Romans dealt with Paul's remedy to love one another is the very same remedy that he picked up from Christ in in Matthew 22. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius and they said to him, whose image and inscription is this? We know the story. They said to him, it's Caesar's. And then he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. God's. And and then one of them asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Exactly what we just read in Romans 8. Romans 13, 8. The very same remedy. The very same situation and how to deal with that. Rather than be a hypocrite, he's telling us that the true essence of our faith, the indebtedness to God, is our love towards one another. Which the Bible is very clear, it's humility, it's not pride. Because because the Bible says that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. This is an indicative of, of, of someone who is humble. Paul says in Romans 13, 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, just in case you are confused, Paul nails it. Just If there's any other commandment, okay, that you can find and scrape up, just letting you know they're all summed up in this, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that Paul is dealing with the second table of the law in how we deal with one another. Martin Luther had put down three uses of the law, which are very extremely uh, great because as believers, we look at the law of God, we have a hard time understanding the law because there's so many different interpretations of how people view the law and, and different Hermeneutics and how we approach the Word of God and different things the way that we that we understand the law of God and the three use of the law that I think are very prominent in Scripture prominent in Romans thirteen is first and foremost they they, they they curb punishment through fear of punishment the law keeps the sinful nature of both Christians and non Christians under check what I mean is that it resists evil the law of God restrains evil. In the culture, the law of God is there for a purpose. The government is there for a purpose. The law in and of itself does not stop sin since the sin is already committed when the heart desires to do what is wrong. Yet it does stop the open outbreak of sin that will do even further damage upon the culture. So we understand that there is a law in which it curbs crime. It curbs crime. It also serves as a mirror. The law serves as a perfect reflection of what God created, the human heart, and life to be. It shows anyone who compares his or her life to God's requirement for perfection that he or she is sinful. Men thereby may be led to the knowledge of their sins. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law was given not only to be put into place to to curb evil back, keep it back. It also becomes a mirror to show us 
that the law is our schoolmaster, that we're very sinful, exceedingly sinful, to lead us to Christ. We can be justified by faith. And then it's a guide. The use of the law that applies only to Christians. The law becomes the believer's helper, empowered by the gospel truth of forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. The believer's new self eagerly desires to live to please the triune God. In other words, it's an outline. I mean, it's if you, it, it mean it's it, it, it defines what our behavior should look like. It's not arbitrary. We just don't come up with that subjective. I mean, the law of God. Um, we're no longer, in the sense, a slave to the law of God. The law of God is no longer condemning us. Why? Because we are born again. We're no longer condemned by the law, a slave to law, because of our sinful nature. The law is perfect, but our sinful nature shows the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says in his book called The Whole Christ. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to get it. It's very practical, very, very powerfully written book. It's called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. He says, God was gracious in giving the law. The moral law was not made obsolete with the civil and ceremonial laws, but has upheld believers through the spirit. This is clearly seen in the law to love God and to love others. In order to obey the law of love, believers need guidance. They need guidance on how to love. Grace, in this sense, always gives rise to obligation, duty, and law. This is why the Lord Jesus, Jesus himself was at pains to stress that love for him is expressed by commandment keeping. It is true that the New Testament teaches us about the law of love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Indeed, the whole law is, the, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But love is never said to be a replacement for law and scripture for several important reasons. The first is that love is what law commands. And the commands are what love fulfills. The law of love is not, a, is not freshly minted, new covenant idea. It is enshrined at the heart of the old covenant faith and life. It was to be Israel's constant confession. The Lord is one, and he is to be loved in a whole-souled manner. The second is the often overlooked principle. Love requires direction and principles of operation. Love is motivation, but it is not a self-interpreting direction. Paul's exposition of the Christian life in Romans 13, 8-10 involves the significant principle that love is the fulfilling of the law. But he spells out for us that the law he is talking about in this context is the commandments, that is, the Ten Commandments. He cites four of the neighbor love commandments, but he does not isolate these particular commandments, adultery, murder, stealing, and coveting. Rather, he goes on to include any other commandment. Commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured into the heart by the Holy Spirit. Love empowers the engine. Law guides the direction. They are mutually inter interdependent. The notion that love can operate apart from law is a figment of the imagination. It is not only bad theology, it is, it is poor psychology. It has to borrow from law to give eyes to love. that powerful? I mean, that is so, so true. I mean, it really is. They, they work in conjunction. There's a really good book out there you might want to grab too. It's written by the last name Kievan. It's called The Grace of Law. The Grace of Law. And it shows how um, grace has always been the underlying message of God throughout the entirety of Scripture, even the Mosaic Covenant, that it was really a covenant of grace uh, in, in the sense of, of, it, of, its, 
of its direction and its target was always an object of grace. Pretty interesting. Jesus said himself, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And this brings us to 8.11 of the book of Romans. It says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Romans 13.11 says, And do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believe. And he goes on to say, Let us walk honestly. As in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, which really is an immodest lifestyle, and not in strife and envying. The whole idea that this Christian charitable, charity and love really in Scripture really mean the same thing. And this whole idea of walking honestly, charitable, as in the day. He says, let us walk decently in habit and in our dress, in our apparel, the way that not only that we uh, morally conduct ourselves, but in also how we dress. That we're not dressing like the world. I'm not saying that, you know, um, that we need to have a particular dress code in order to be holy. What I'm saying is that we should always dress in a way that is different from the way the world favors. Our lives should uh, be seen differently than what the world does. We should walk honestly. And walking honestly isn't just um, saying the truth with everything that you say. It's not just speaking. Walking is, is, is uh, indicative of our lifestyle. It's who we are and what we do, how we walk, how we live, our relationship, our communication, not only to one another, but to the world. Let us walk decently in habit or dress. Let our deportment be decent, orderly, and grave, such as we shall not be ashamed of the eyes of the whole world. Not in rioting and drunkenness, rioting and unclean and immoral songs, he goes on to say, banquets and such like signifies drunken festivals such as we that were celebrated in honor of their gods when after they had sacrificed, they drank to excess, accompanied with abominable acts of every kind. Sexual immorality. Really just, you know, it's, it's this whole rioting and drunkenness, this behavior that was of, uh, in the time what, what Paul was dealing with as well, as we've already talked about Rome in the context of their lifestyle, how they lived and how they would behave. And when they would sacrifice to their false god, they would just get loaded and, and drunk and start committing all these barbaric sexual acts and doing all these things. And it's, it's just, it's not what the Christian does. It's not walking in truth. It's not walking honestly. It's not walking in love. It's not loving our neighbor. It's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches us. We're not to be strive, not to be in strife and envying, not in contentions and furious altercations, which must be the consequence of such practices that are mentioned above. You think about just the, the behavior, the attitudes, the drinking, the violence, the sexual promiscuity, the perversion, the deviancy, all these things that would flow out of that would be strife, there would be envying. I mean, I, I think that one of the biggest sins uh, today in our culture is envying. I mean, you get on Instagram, you're envying everybody on there because they've all got a fake life that doesn't exist. It's en everybody's envying everybody. You know, nobody really wants to admit it, but the reality is it's just, it's just constant strife and envying 
uh, of everything that's going on. We want to be like everybody else. and We want to look like everybody else. And we want to fit in to the whole context of the world system. But the reality says, as Christians, we never truly fit in. And that's okay. Because I want to fit in to, to Christ's church. I want to fit into Christ's definition of what he had had me to be, even at the expense of being made fun of. I know if I'm accepted by God at the end of the day, who cares what the world thinks of me? Who cares what other people, how they define and characterize me or make fun of me or if I don't have everything together or the right clothes or the right hairstyle or enough money in my bank account and I drive in the right car? Who cares? Who cares? Because you know how fast this life is passing away? You know how quickly it's going to be you're standing before God? You know how fast it's going to be? I just had a nephew die of 20 years old. He just, he just died. 20 short little years of his life. I don't think he even knew that that day when he came home, it was going to be his last day. And this is how quick life is. And usually life takes us by surprise. We're never expecting to die. Most deaths occur unexpected. You know that? It's factual. Most of us will never get a deathbed experience. Most of our deaths will come as a surprise. And it comes quickly. God has a million ways of taking people out of this world. And most of the time we don't realize it when it happens, but it will happen. So we don't want to be shaped and molded by what everybody else thinks about us. We want to be shaped and molded by what Christ and our Lord thinks about us. We're to imitate God in all these things. We're not to practice the practices of the heathens. We're to be a peculiar people. And this is, this is, this is why... We are different. And this is why the Bible says, And do this, knowing the time is now a high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife, not in envy, but instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The night is far spent. If we understand this in reference to the heathen state of the Romans, it may be paraphrased thus. The night is far spent. Heathenous darkness is nearly at the end. The day is at hand. The full manifestation of the sun of righteousness, the illumination of the whole Gentile world, approaches rapidly. The manifestation of the Messiah is regularly termed by the ancient Jews, Yom Day, because previously this, is, this all is night. Cast off the works of darkness. Prepare to meet the rising light and welcome its approach by throwing aside superstition, impiety, and vice of every kind and put on the armor of light. Fully receive the heavenly teaching by which your spirits will be as completely armed against the attacks of evil as your bodies could be by the best weapons and impenetrable armor. This sense seems most suitable to the following verses, which were the vices of the Gentiles and are particularly specified that they are exhorted to abandon them and receive the gospel of Christ. The common method of explanation is this. The night is far spent. Our present imperfect life full of afflictions, temptations, trials is almost run out. It's almost over. The day of eternal blessedness is at hand. It's about to dawn on us in our glorious resurrection unto eternal life. Therefore, let us cast off, let us live as candidates for this eternal glory. But this sense cannot all comport with what is said below, as the Gentiles are most evidently, evidently intended. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And finishing up, this whole idea, the, 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 the remedy for all of this, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to a Gentile audience. 
He's speaking to people who who are up to their neck in sin, in idolatry, or around those who are. And this is a reference to what is said in Romans 13, 13, where he says, let us put on decent garments. Let us make a, a, a different profession. Unite with other company and maintain that profession by a suitable conduct. Putting on or being clothed with Jesus Christ signifies receiving and believing the gospel. And consequently taking its maxims for the government of life. Having the mind that was in Christ. The ancient Jews frequently used the phrase putting on the Shekinah or divine majesty to signify the souls being clothed with immortality and rendered fit for glory. To be clothed with a person is a Greek is a Greek phrase. So when he spoke this, they would have definitely understood the phrase. This is the point. This is why he even makes the, makes the whole point by saying these words because he knew that they would understand the idea of putting on. To be clothed with a person is a Greek phrase signifying to assume the interest of another, to enter into his views, to imitate him, and to be holy on his side. St. Chrysostom particularly mentions this as a common phrase. Such a one hath put on such a one. He closely follows and imitates him. John Gill says they were no longer the servants of Tarquin, but they clothed themselves with him. They imitated and ate him in everything. Eusebius, in his life of Constantine, says the same of his sons. They put on their father. They put on their father. They seem to enter into his spirit. They seem to enter into his views and imitate him in all things. The mode of speech itself is taken from the custom of stage players. They assumed the name, the garments of the person whose character they were to act and endeavored as closely as possible to imitate him in their spirit and in their words and in their actions. And this is the point where Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh to fulfill its lust. This is where we ourselves are to take upon the characteristics of our God. We're to imitate him. We're to walk as he walked. We're to love the things that he loves. We're to be like him in every arena, in every facet of life. This is what it means to to put on Christ. This is the whole idea that the Gentiles would have recognized in their day when it meant they had put on their father. Why? Because he acts like him. He even looks like him. He walks like him. He imitates him almost perfectly. So we put on Christ for that same reason. And we don't do it falsely. We don't do it to perform, to try to impress everybody. But we do it because we love Christ. And in our performance, because we love Christ, we'll perform in such a way to a lost and dying world, but we'll also perform in such a way to one another. And this will show the world that we're truly of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for... Um, these commands, Lord, to love one another, uh, these commands are, are, are such needed in our day and are, are so easily forgotten or so easily just put aside. Lord, you are the definition of love. God is love. And because the Spirit of God lives within us, who is a perfect representation of the Father, but in spirit, the triune God, empowered to love your law, to obey your law, not in a sense of condemnation, but in articulation and definition 
of the love of God. Lord, would you grant this small body of believers the ability to love one another, to love you, and to love this world? Grant us this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.